Have you ever noticed that God does things a bit different than we might? You know that, right? And yeah, amen. And we were kind of, I think we joked about this at the end of our, our um, study time this morning in Sunday school, that, that it's a good thing God's in control and we're not, isn't it? Sometimes we don't fully see that. Sometimes we don't fully agree with that. Sometimes we think, God, couldn't you just give me a little bit more control over this situation? God certainly does things a bit different than we do, does things differently than we might. In the familiar words of Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9, God states it very very plainly that this is true. When Isaiah 58 or 55 verses 8 and 9 says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. That's that's a truth that we're going to see very clearly again in our text this morning in John chapter 7. Would you go there with me? John 7. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 9 this morning. And as we enter chapter 7 of John's Gospel, what we find is that the passage before us basically is is setting the stage for the rest of what happens with Christ in the remainder of this gospel. It's kind of setting the stage, setting the groundwork, setting the, the surroundings and the environment in which we're going to see the escalation of hostility against Christ and toward the Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to see hostility escalate into the rest of John's Gospel. But let's look together at John chapter 7 and follow along as I read verses 1 through 9. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me, because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I'm not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. So it says here in in verse 1 that after this, those words after this point back to the events that we we saw in chapter 6. Jesus traveled about in Galilee after those events. What we don't see here is that, that about six or seven months have taken place between chapter 6, the, the, the end of chapter 6 and the beginning of chapter 7, about six or seven months or so. And in that time, Jesus has been with his disciples, his 12, teaching them, instructing them, and he's been preparing them for the time when, when they would follow his instruction and go and spread the gospel after his ascension. Now, also during that time, the opposition to Jesus' ministry has increased. It's been growing. And we learn also from verse 1 that Jesus wouldn't travel about teaching in Judea because of this opposition and the fact that the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now look at verses 2 through 4 again. Now it says here, Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brothers said to him, 
leave here. Go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. Now, Jesus' brothers, they obviously want him to go with them to this Feast of Booths or Feast of Tabernacles. What is that? What's this Feast of Booths or Feast of Tabernacles? Some translations use that. Uh, commentator Leon Morris notes that this was a, a feast of thanksgiving primarily for the blessings of God in the harvest, but it was also observed with special reference to the blessings received during the wilderness wanderings, the time when God was pleased to manifest himself in the tabernacle. Note that. This is kind of interesting to me because here are his brothers, the brothers of Christ, and they're going up to this Feast of Booths or Feast of Tabernacles, and this is to, to be a time of rejoicing and celebration. It's, it's looking back on a time when God manifested himself in the tabernacle, when, when the Jews were wandering, right? So here are Jesus' brothers. Just hold that thought for a moment. Here are Jesus' brothers going up to Judea for this religious feast, this celebration, and what they're encouraging Jesus to do is to go along with them so that those who were following him could see more of his miracles. And the passage here says also that his, probably kind of hidden in their motive here is the fact that they didn't yet believe in him. So there's this, hey, uh, Jesus, you just kind of need to make yourself known. The idea is they're, they're kind of like they're saying, do something to make a big splash. And kind of behind their motives is do something to prove yourself to us too because we're not quite sure we believe you say you are who you say you are. You are who you say you are. So they're saying, Jesus, show the world your stuff. After all, you've lost a lot of your followers and, and there are people who are opposing you. Here's your chance to to get some new followers. Here's a, here's a chance to make yourself known. But remember, as we said at the beginning, God's ways are not our ways. God's ways are not always our ways. God's ways don't always align with the ways of the world. This is the world's way of gaining a following. This isn't God's way. It wasn't Christ's way. And you know it ought not be the way of the church either. You know, the world says... Things like, and this is creeping into the church these days in, in some popular writing, in some popular books, that, that the church really needs to do things the way the world, uh, the way the businesses do in the world. We need to think more like entrepreneurs as churches rather than as churches, and as the, as the way the Bible states we ought to, to work. The world says advertise. The world says promote yourself. The world says gain a big following, gain a big name, do something crazy to get people's attention. And while I'll say, yes, we certainly want the community to know that we exist as a church and we do things to help the, help the community realize we exist and, and they know we're here, we are not to be primarily all about making a big splash in the world by, by trying to gain a large following. We're not to be about putting all of our effort into getting people to like us. It's not all about gaining popularity. Also, Think about this. It may have been here that Jesus' brothers were thinking about what they might gain, what they might get from, from a, an increased notoriety toward the Lord Jesus Christ, an increased following of Christ. That's the danger of thinking like the world too. 
you know, it's easy to get caught up in the kind of thinking that, that self-preserves. It's easy to get caught up in the kind of thinking that, that self-promotes. We kind of tend to think about ourselves first, don't we? We tend to kind of think of, of ways to, to make ourselves comfortable and, and promote ourselves first and primarily. It's easy to get caught up in that kind of thinking that self-preserves and self-promotes and cares more for what one can get out of any particular situation rather than how one can be obedient to Christ. See, that's the danger of thinking like the world. Self-promotion first, self-preservation first, obedience second. That's not the way it's supposed to be for us as the church, is it? It's not the way it's supposed to be for us as God's people. Obedience should come first. When self-preservation comes before obedience, we will always drift away from the truth and we will drift toward error. When self-preservation and self-promotion comes first, we're always going to find ourselves drifting away from the truth and into dangerous territory. Even some in the church at large today, some say that we need to use the world's ways to gain a following. But you remember, and I compare it to this, you remember what, what Satan tried to tempt Jesus with? Remember what Satan tried to tempt Jesus with when, when tempted in the desert? The kind of thinking that Satan used? Remember Satan said, command these stones to become loaves of bread? You're hungry, right? Command these stones to become loaves of bread. You can do that. Think of yourself. And then he said, if you're the Son of God, throw yourself down, right? And Satan even quoted God's Word. Interestingly enough, Satan quoted God's Word saying that the angels would spare Christ from harm if he threw himself down. And then Satan showed Jesus all the kingdoms of the world and said, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. It's like you have to think, what in the world was Satan thinking? All these I will give you if you'll fall down and worship me. And what did Jesus say in reply to each of Satan's temptations? He continually rejected him with the word. He didn't think like the world. He didn't think selfishly. He didn't think self-preservation, self-promotion. He went back to the word of truth. Jesus said, man shall not live by bread alone. When Satan said, turn these stones into bread, Jesus says, you know what? Physical bread is not the most important thing. But by every word that comes from the mouth of God, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every mouth that comes from the word, every word that comes from the mouth of God. And then Jesus said, again, quoting God's word, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. When Satan tried to tempt him to throw himself down, that the angels might scoop him up before he's harmed, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And then he said, for the third time, quoting scripture, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Satan's ways, Satan's ways were to, to try to tempt Jesus with fame and power and wealth. You know, he's not stopped doing that today. He tempts us with, with fame and power and wealth today. Jesus' way was to point back to the Word and obedience to it. That is where we must find ourselves, going back to the Word and obedience to God's Word. We also saw it back in John 6.15 where the crowds wanted to make Jesus their king. They were thinking some great political leader of Christ, right? This is what the Messiah must be, someone who will come and change the land, the political landscape and, and take care of us. Remember what Jesus 
did in John 6.15, he would have nothing to do with them making him their king. He withdrew from them. He withdrew from them and he went up and we know that he went and he prayed. He would have nothing to do with, with the world's way of getting things done. You want to know what Jesus' way of accomplishing the Father's will was? You want to know what Jesus' way of accomplishing the Father's will was? Do you want to know how God intends for his children to live? It's clear in a passage like Philippians chapter 2. Would you go there with me this morning? Philippians 2. You want to know what the mind of God is and how we ought to live in today's world? You want to know how God intends to accomplish His purposes in the world in which we live today? Philippians 2. There are others like it, but Philippians 2 and verses 3 through 11 is a very powerful passage in helping us know the heart and mind of God. And we see this in the example of Christ lived out. Philippians 2, listen to verses 3 through 11. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you not look only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Listen, God the Father tells God the Son and tells his followers that the way to exaltation is through humiliation. That is not the way of the world, is it? That is not the way of the world. That's not the way the world thinks. Are you kidding me? The world says the way up is down? That can't be. Self-promotion is the way. The way up is up. But that's not what God's Word says. See, God's Word says count others as more significant than yourself. Do we do that in the church? Do we do that as God's children? Do we look around and consider others as more significant, more important than ourselves? We don't naturally do that, do we? But we do that by the power of the Spirit and the Word. The deceiver says, look out for your own interests. Don't worry about the needs of others. God's Word says, humble yourself before God and be obedient. Put others first. Jesus' brothers say, You've got to get yourself out there, Jesus. You've got to make yourself known. We're not quite sure we believe in you yet. But if you're going to do these miracles and signs and things, why not gain a larger following while you're at it? Go out and make yourself known. You've got to show them what you can do. But note, note where these ideas come from. Note where the world's way of doing things comes from. Note the deceiver's way of thinking, where it comes from. Note where it comes from. It comes, look at verse 5, it comes from unbelieving hearts, for not even his brothers believed in him. 
The words they spoke were coming from minds and hearts that were un unbelieving. They were unbelieving. They don't yet believe in Christ. And it's kind of ironic. Remember, I noted it earlier that they're headed up to this feast where they're going to worship and thank and, and this celebration where they thank God for making himself known, for revealing himself in the temple. And how does how did God manifest himself in their own midst through Jesus Christ? And yet they don't believe in him. And that here they are going up to this feast of booths. And it's kind of ironic that they're headed out to this religious feast, but they don't even believe in the one who is their Messiah. Now this is the same kind of lack of belief that was prophesied about when Psalm 69.8 says, I have become a stranger to my brothers and alien to my mother's sons. God's Word, the Old Testament, prophesied about just this kind of thing. Here are Jesus' own half-brothers. And they're His half-brothers, mind you, because Jesus is not the seed of Joseph, but of the Holy Spirit, right? And they have seen Jesus from childhood. It seems incredible that they could know Jesus from childhood and not know Him and not believe in Him and not, not yet believe. Now, they believed He could work miracles, right? Because they're saying, why do these things in secret? Why not go, go up and make your, your works more public, make your miracles more public and gain a larger following? You know that they believed He could work miracles, but they did not believe He was the Messiah yet. Now, we know that later they do believe. Acts 1.14 indicates that and others. And, and two of his brothers, James and Jude, write New Testament books, but they don't yet believe in Christ. And so what they're telling him to do is coming from unbelieving hearts and minds. They're thinking like the world and they're, and they're trying to get him to think like the world. It's a reminder to you that just because you're familiar with Jesus doesn't necessarily mean you believe in him. That's a challenge to us. It's a challenge to all who, who go to church, right? And those who say, I read my Bible. Just because you read your Bible, just because you go to church, just because you were raised in a Christian family does not mean you're a true follower of Jesus Christ. That's why 2 Corinthians 13.5 tells you to examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do not allow yourself to go untested in the area of your faith. Because proximity to Christ is no privilege. You see it very clearly in the brothers of Christ. Even his own brothers had to believe in Jesus if they were to be saved, yes? So proximity to Christ is no privilege. There's a warning here for you. If you think that by attending church you're God's child, there's a warning here for you. If you think that you are saved because you can, you can claim a date that you pray to prayer, or claim a date when you walk an aisle. I, I say that carefully because there are some who think you, you've got to walk the aisle and, and surrender in front of the church to be saved. And that's not what God's Word teaches. God says, repent and believe. Confess your sin to Jesus Christ. Confess that you believe in Him. Confess that you're a sinner in need of salvation. It doesn't say where. It doesn't say when. It doesn't say in what form. I say be careful that we not expect people to say, hey, make sure you write down the date and time, the day you were saved, so then you'll know you're saved. That's dangerous. Because God's Word doesn't teach us to name and claim a date and time. 
I understand the thinking behind that, and I and I respect those who say, write down the date and time you're, you you prayed the prayer. But that's kind of dangerous thinking in some ways because God's word doesn't say that. God's word says, examine yourself, test yourself, see whether you're really in the faith. Because proximity to Christ is no privilege. Someone may have sent you down the aisle to pray. But you cannot trust Christ against your will, right? You have to surrender to Jesus Christ. You have to confess that you're a sinner and repent of your sin. That means turn from your sin and turn to Christ to be saved. You may know the day you did that, and I'm so thankful for that if you do. But don't don't hang your salvation on a date and time. Hang your salvation on the fact that you know God is working in you. There's a warning here if you think that you're saved simply because you were raised in a Christian home or been going to the church for many years or your or your dad's a preacher, like my dad's a preacher. Right? When you examine yourself, is there evidence that you've placed your faith in Christ and His finished work on the cross alone for your salvation? His brothers did not yet believe in Him. Just because they were His brothers did not make them believers. When you test yourself, do you find evidence that you're being changed by God's Word? When you test yourself, do you find evidence that you're being changed by God's Word? If there isn't evidence that you're being changed, it's likely you are not God's child. I am not suggesting perfection. I am suggesting progress, right? Is there growth in godliness because you are God's child? The evidence should be there if you're God's child. Now, note that Jesus had a different timetable also, a different schedule to keep than the one his brothers offered. Verse 6, Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. God's ways are not our ways, are they? God's schedule is different than the way the world would do it. And we ought not conform to the world's ways because God's way, God's way is best. God's way is, well, think of it. God is perfect. So his way is perfect, right? God's timing is also perfect. Warren Wearsby notes that our Lord lived on a divine timetable that was marked out by the Father. You see, Jesus is at, uh, is on a divine timetable. He's on a divine schedule. He's on the Father's schedule. His life is not random chance activity. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, says Galatians 4.4, 4, right? That means at the perfect time, at the right time, at the, at the time laid down by the Father, He sent forth His Son. Jesus came, born as a babe. When? At the right time. Jesus acted in all ways because he was acting out of obedience to the Father. How and when? At the right time. Jesus was crucified and died at the right time. Exactly at the right time, he would go to the cross and Jesus rose from the dead. When? At the right time. Be encouraged. Be challenged. Be encouraged by that that God's timetable may not be your timetable, but it's the right timetable. He will do 
as well in his time. Note that Jesus wasn't going to go with his brothers to the feast, not because he was afraid. He wasn't afraid of going to the feast. Yes, he was facing opposition and harm, but because it was not yet time for him to face that severe persecution that he would face when it was time. At the right time, he would be taken and crucified for our sins, but it wasn't at that time. So why would he not go up and make himself known? Why would he not take advantage of some notoriety and some public? He knew there were those who hated him. He knew there were those who wanted to kill him, and it was not time. Note why they hated Christ too. Verse 7, the world cannot hate you. And that points back to their, the fact that they're unregenerate, that they're unbelieving. The world can't hate you because you're the world. <laughs> but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. Jesus' brothers were in no particular danger of going up to the Feast of Booths. But Christ, that's a different story. Christ was hated. He was despised. Why? Why was Christ so despised? Why was he hated by the world? And this is the thought we're going to come back to tonight when we come back for a time of worship and fellowship. Why does the world hate Jesus? They hate him because Jesus exposes their evil deeds for what they are. He preached against their sin. He preached against their evil deeds. Jesus preached repentance for sin. Those who sought to kill him rejected his preaching and rejected that there was any need for repentance of sin. They didn't kill him because he worked miracles. They didn't kill him because he healed the sick and caused the blind to see. They killed him because he preached against their sin and proclaimed that salvation was through faith in Jesus Christ, through repentance of sin, belief in Christ. And it's interesting that the Jewish religious system was out to destroy the very giver of life, the one who would save his people from their sin. Verses 8 and 9 say, You go up to the feast, his brother's speaking to him, or he's speaking to his brothers, You go up to the feast. I'm not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. Jesus wasn't in a hurry. You realize that God's not in a hurry either. God's not in a hurry in your life or mine. Sometimes we we live on this earthly timetable and we think, I'm, you know, if we if this doesn't happen like right now in this kind of a time frame, then thing, things are not going to be good. All is lost. God's not in a hurry. God does want us to be sober-minded about the days and the times and to spread the good news of Jesus Christ and to share the gospel with our neighbors, but he doesn't want us to lose sleep. He doesn't want us to lose sleep over the fact that, that we aren't in control. He wants us to sleep. He wants us to rest. He wants us to get the needed rest we need because he's in control. And Jesus wasn't in a hurry, but he was always on time. He was never late. And God's never late in your case or my case on our behalf. God's always on time. 
He would go up to the feast at the proper time. We're going to see it in verse 10. He didn't go up to that feast, but he would go up at the proper time and he would do that discreetly so as not to reveal himself before it was time. God's ways are not our own, are they? Jesus would not deviate from the Father's plan. We need to rest in knowing that God's ways are perfect and righteous and holy. His timing is perfect. His timing is is never too early and never too late. Always on time. His timing is perfect and His ways are perfect and His plans are perfect. And we need to humble ourselves before God, don't we? We need to remind ourselves that He's in control and we need to humble, humble ourselves to His ways and not get caught up in the world's ways of doing things and say, you know, self first. Take care of yourself and promote yourself first and then and then if there's time for obedience, if there's a place for that, then you can fit that in later. No, no. Obey first. Depend upon the Lord at all times because His ways are not your ways. You do not have the mind of God. I do not have the mind of God. It is ours not to know necessarily what God is doing tomorrow, but it's ours to be obedient today and tomorrow. We have the example of Christ. He would not deviate from the Father's plan. Let's learn from Christ to follow God's ways in all we do. Let's learn to yield to the Father. Let's learn to submit to the Father's will. Let's know and obey God's Word. Let's pray. Our precious Heavenly Father, we thank You. We thank You that Your timing is perfect and at the the appointed time, You sent Your Son, Jesus Christ, to be the sacrifice for our sins. Father, we thank You that Your ways are perfect, that You are sinless in all Your ways, that You are righteous and holy and just. And your ways and your plans are perfect. And Father, we thank you that you order our days. And you know us even before we appear in our mother's womb. Father, we praise you that we are, as the word reminds us, we are fearfully and wonderfully made by you and your control. Lord, help us to yield to you. Help us to rest in your providence. Lord, help us to rest in your care, your provision for us, and your promised watch, care, and guidance in our lives. When we yield to you, God, help us to yield to you. Help us to know your word and help us to obey it for God's glory. That we might glorify the Son, Jesus Christ. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.